how you feel about the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a bit of a funny one. I don't think it's quite Marmite. Um, I don't think people love it or hate it, but quite probably they love it or just don't know what to make of it. Um, my guess would be that if you're particularly sensitive to characters in literature, you might well get a lot out of Ruth at first reading. But if you're more like me, and you, you key in, because you're a bit simple, to plot a narrative, it could easily pass you by a bit. What happens? Not much. It's been described as a romantic comedy just because it's got a love story and it ends well. Is that all that it is? Where does it fit into salvation history? Where are the, the things we long to see, the great events, God's hand at work, saving or judging? People do refer to God throughout the book, but aside from two verses, we're not specifically told that he's doing anything. Admittedly, in other books, he's got a lower profile. In Esther, uh, God isn't mentioned at all. But even there, we see him achieve far greater things, don't we? Uh, A people are saved by their self-sacrificial queen. Ruth is a book of little people mundane life. So what are we supposed to make of it? I think it is much more than just a nice little moral story or a piece of culturally specific wisdom literature. And I think the clue is in the structure of the book, especially the first and last few verses. Uh, Look at Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... Do you remember those days? Israel has been led out of Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea and through the desert. And a whole generation has died along the way. They've been figuratively ransomed and purified. And they've been led into God's promised land, into God's rest. They are ready to be God's people in his land, under his rule, and to be the blessing for the whole earth, to see the promises to Abraham finally fulfilled. But it hasn't worked. Even God's mighty acts haven't dealt with the hidden core problem. Their rebellious hearts thwart God's promises and the good perfect law that he's given them it it only really serves to highlight their wickedness and so this time the time of the judges it's characterized by an unbreakable downwards spiral as Israel rebels is punished and repents rebellion punishment repentance rebellion punishment repentance Judges finishes with that damning comment. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So in the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, if you're an Israelite, which we're not, uh, but if you're an Israelite, then there your ears prick up. Because it's the line of Judah that God's promises to Abraham were supposed to be passed down through. 
And this guy, look at him, he, he's called Elimelech. That's not just a mouthful. It, it, it means God is king. Well, this sounds promising. But what we see next is awful. It's the chaotic time of the judges. There's such bad famine that even this man of Judah reckons that he'll be better off if he leaves the promised land altogether. He goes to the enemy. He goes to Moab, the people who opposed Israel in the past. His name is God is King, but we get a little mini genealogy here and we see anything but that. It's a descent into obscurity. His sons, they're called sickness and failing. And within ten years, they're dead. And the line of God is king, the line of God's promise, is finished, cut short, outside of the promised land. I think the reader here is meant to be asking, what is this? Are we seeing the complete failure of God's blessings? At the risk of giving out spoilers, I'll, I'll take the privilege of being first in the series. and Jump ahead to the end of chapter four with you and we'll steal the punchline. Um, Ruth starts with a sort of downwards genealogy. Elimelech, Marlon, Killian, nothing. But it ends with a lift back up. Look at Ruth 4, verses 18 to 22. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and this is where it gets interesting, Jesse the father of David. Somewhere in between these two passages, God has broken the cycle of despair from the time of Judges. Elimelech's name was at risk of being cut off from Israel. But by the end of this book, his family has been redeemed by Boaz. His line has been carried on in Ruth's children. And somehow the nation of Israel has been set back on a path towards God's king, David. And of course, even more for us, if we look at this through the lens of the New Testament, In Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy is quoted and expanded and we see that this leads on to Jesus himself. So somewhere in here, great things are accomplished. But the way that God does that is not with massive events on the grand scale. He works it out with immense, gentle kindness in the lives of two more or less destitute women and a more or less past it old man. This is a book about a God who rules not just on the world stage, but he is also subtly sovereign in humdrum everyday lives. And yet he somehow knits those two scales together. And in his kindness, he shepherds his people towards rest. It's also a book about God's people going away and coming back. Uh, That's a key theme throughout the book, but especially in chapter one. And the words for return or repent, go back, come out again and again to describe what the characters are doing and what's going on. We're going to focus on that now. So have a look at chapter one again. 
It looks at two women in distinct but equally difficult situations. Uh, First up, we've got Naomi. She is, in many ways, the main character of the book, although perhaps she is just used to give context to Ruth's story. Uh, Naomi and her family, they're, they're in Israel. But because of drought or war or some other event, we don't know exactly what, the crops have failed them. God's land, it seems, is not going to provide for them anymore. So they mimic some of their forefathers, people like Abraham, and they leave the promised land. They up sticks. They emigrate to Moab. By the time we join the story, they've settled and raised their boys. They've married them off. But first Elimelech dies and then her two sons. Naomi is left essentially destitute. She is cut off from Israel geographically. Her line has been snipped short. And her part in God's promises, it's erased. The author, he doesn't make a big point of whether she has done a particular wrong or not. Uh, The structure of verses 1 to 5 does suggest disapproval. Leaving Israel to find food, it, it sounds fair enough, but shouldn't you know to rely on God? Marrying your sons to Moabites, it's not strictly against the law, but at the very least it's questionable. Moabites were excluded from the assembly of Israel. They could never be full members of the people. But maybe those weren't Naomi's decisions, we don't know. There's no direct criticism of her. So I think we're not supposed to see her as someone who has been especially sinful. Rather, she's a normal person. She's no worse, no better than the rest of us. Moreover, she's someone who was full of blessing, but has been completely emptied out. And then to cap it all, look at verse 6. God goes and saves the people back home after he's done so little for her. You can imagine that for Naomi, that might have felt like the final slap in the face. Her summary of chapter 1 is is obviously verses 20 and 21. Look at those. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I was full, but the Lord has made me empty. I'm not pleasant anymore. The Lord has testified against me. The Lord has brought misfortune on me. And the thing is, she's not wrong, is she? You can see her thinking. God, did it really need to be this hard? I'm back in God's place with his people. I've repented and returned. There, There are no blessings, though. What was pleasant has become bitter. What was full has been made empty. God's sovereignty has been demonstrated. You win, God, I'm back. But where's your good provision? What do I do now if God's blessings have failed me completely? Then we've got Ruth. Uh, She's departed from her family to marry a foreigner, so to some extent she's already separated from her home culture. 
She's left her gods behind to hold to her husband's weird foreign god. And verses 16 and 17 make it clear that hers is a heartfelt conversion. It's not one of convenience. But what does she get for it? She gets widowed. And now her mother-in-law is planning to head home to a culture where Ruth will be an outsider, an alien. Worse, she'll be one of the old enemy. She'll be unable to buy land and look out for herself, very unlikely to be able to find a new husband and family. Where's God's rest for her? For this convert? In verse 8, Naomi makes this generous suggestion to Ruth in Orpah. Uh, she, she uses the same go back, return, repent language that is used about her in her return to Israel. It's as if she's giving them the chance to decide that they've actually made a duff choice and to set it straight. She says, girls, repent to your people and your gods. Go back. You might well be better off with them than with me. May the Lord show you kindness. May he give you rest there. I can't guarantee you'll get it here. And Orpah is set against Ruth as a comparison. She takes the invitation, she heads home, but we're not given any particular moral comment. It's not clear if she does anything wrong. She's been as good to Naomi as could be expected. After all, what can you do if you're left in such a desperate situation? What can you do when, despite the virtues of their kindness, the blessings of this God that they've married into have dried up Don't you have to make your own way? Of course, um, the problem with dealing just with chapter one is that you don't see the full picture yet. You don't get to see the full solution, and that's true to life. If you're a visitor, uh, let let me say, we, we heard earlier, we're halfway through a series on Job at the moment. We've been looking at suffering, uh, and, and this series in Ruth is coming as a bit of an interlude. But we've been seeing that there are so many holes in all the easy answers to suffering. I'll, I'll try not to give any glib responses, as if actually life is easy if your faith is straight. It isn't. Naomi's bitterness and her loss are real, and they are reasonable. She's lost everything. And Ruth is following her into a foreign land with the expectation of life in poverty. And we we see hints as well in chapter 2 that she's going to be in genuine danger of ill treatment and molestation. God's blessings will reach them, but they come at the end of some genuinely tough times. And we only get the hint of it in chapter 1. Verse 22, they get home just at the beginning of harvest. We're just about to begin to see the fruit of God's work. But I want you to see that actually the seeds of his blessing have already been sown. Uh, For Naomi, the seed of the blessing has been there for some time. Perhaps she doesn't recognise it though. Uh, She thinks she's empty and childless, abandoned almost by God. She completely overlooks them and fails to appreciate poor Ruth. Ruth is there with her and in her kindness which goes so far beyond the ordinary requirements of family 
in her faithful, loving, holding to that family relationship. We're later told Ruth is better than seven sons. God has provided Ruth for Naomi. Or again, Naomi sees the bitterness of her life and she correctly ascribes it to God. He has brought it on her. But what she might well see as punishment or rebuke or maybe even the vindictiveness of God. By the end of the book, we're going to see it maybe as discipline, maybe readying her, but definitely as the first step towards God's gracious plan to unleash blessings that she simply doesn't deserve. Just think, if God had withheld his hand and not brought bitterness upon her, well, Naomi would have died in a foreign land. Maybe there would have been further descendants, but the sense of time in the introduction, the ten years pass, I, I, I suspect they indicate a lack of fertility especially contrasted with chapter 4, verse 13, later on. Now, if God had withheld his hand, I think Naomi would have been essentially empty and cut off from Israel's promises. As it is, by the end of Ruth, we see her redeemed and provided for by faithful, kind Boaz. We see the empty woman made more full than she could have imagined and all because God humbled her and brought her home in disgrace. Again, I I don't want it to sound easy. Naomi's return home was clearly an act of faith. She sees from afar how the Lord keeps coming to the aid of his foolish, rebellious people. And in penitence, she returns to him and trusts him to do the same for her. She returns to God, even though that was probably personally costly. Think about it, she's uprooted again. And then she goes home and she has to face the gossip of the town in verse 19. That can't have been easy. And all this without any clear end in sight. She knows there is no obvious rest for her. There's no chance of another husband or sons. What does Naomi do when God's blessings fail? When his hand is against her? She repents, returns, and depends on the Lord. She clearly can't see how it will work, but she knows that his sovereign kindness, his faithfulness, are somehow reliable. She cries out in bitterness, but at the same time, we'll see around the place here in verses 8 and 9, or in chapter 2, verse 20, that she still expects God to act justly in rightly blessing his people. Over the next few weeks, we'll see that hope of Naomi's more than fulfilled. Her trajectory through the book takes us from emptiness to fullness. It shows God's steadfast kindness, his readiness to provide for his people, even far beyond his covenant obligation. What do you do when God's blessings fail? You return to him and you cling to him. And although in all likelihood it will continue to be tough, he will provide. 
that's Naomi, for Ruth as well. I think the seeds of the blessing have already been sown. I think the author has Naomi say it almost unconsciously in verses 8 and 9. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant you rest with another husband. Now, we don't know what happens to Orpah. She's shown some kindness and then she heads home. But we'll see that Ruth gets richly rewarded. And her virtue is presented as not just fulfilling her obligation. Orpah's done that as well. But having a kindness and a commitment that stretches beyond obligation. That's what she gets commended for later on. And it's actually the same virtue that Naomi and then Boaz and God model throughout the book as well. A committed kindness that exceeds law or duty. Ruth carries on being steadfast in her love for her adopted family. And in verse 16 and 17, we get that sense of her complete commitment. It's not just to Naomi, but it's to her adoptive God as well. And I think that's there to indicate that she does take God seriously. This is not just friendship or family requirement. She's committed herself to be one of God's people. And in doing so, she's committed herself to loving them and clinging to them. Ruth's trajectory through the book. It it takes her from a widowed foreigner to the mother of David's line. Openly compared to the great women of Israel, it, it charts God's abundant blessings being poured out to those who have no right to know him, who bring nothing to the table except fruitful faith. What do you do when, like Ruth, you are coming to God's table with nothing to show for yourself? That she has no status as an Israelite, no reason why she should inherit his blessing, or deserve a place there. She has no riches, no military strength, no great deeds to her name. There is no sign even that she's hugely talented in any way. She's not a great Bible teacher. She's not a mighty evangelist. She's not the passionate leader. But in Isaiah 1, God pours scorn on the big, visible acts of their religion. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? And a bit later, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Of course he's pleased with Ruth. Or in James chapter 1 we read, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Ruth's got that religion in spades, hasn't she? The virtue that God's pleased with in her is that when she could be looking out for number one, heading home with Orpah, instead she takes the costly route. She loves Naomi, And she goes to work and provide for her. And isn't it glorious to see how God's grace in accepting her trumps the law that would exclude her from Israel? 
What do you do when you come to God with nothing in your own right, as a a sinner who should be excluded from his promises, with no clear blessing ahead of you? Well, like Ruth, you cling to him and you cling to his people. And in his grace, he will not fail to gather you in. What about us? Um, it's easy to point out that the God of the Bible is unfailingly faithful to his promises. The honest reality is that we don't keep that big picture in mind. We can't. And we're, we're particularly prone to losing sight of it when life gets difficult. Naomi loses her husband and both her children and she doesn't say, oh, all right, God's got it in control. Nothing to worry about. I'll praise him. It's okay. That would be freakish and inhuman faith, wouldn't it? It would be questionable, it would be callous. Naomi cries out in sorrow and bitterness, and likewise, Christians will feel the pain of life beyond our control. So what brings you to that difficult place? What makes you question or doubt the fullness or the goodness of God's provision for you. Perhaps it's just the general dissatisfaction with the progress of life. You find yourself thinking, this is not where I saw myself 10 or 20 years ago. Where is the career or the family? Come on, God. Or do you have that nagging frustration with your spiritual life. You find yourself thinking, why is it so hard to keep God in mind and so easy to slip away? Is this a real thing? I feel no more grown than I was when I was a new Christian, less in some ways. Or are you stuck in a church of imperfect people? who can't really meet your needs, hypothetically, whose vision seems at odds with your own, that doesn't serve and bless you as as you need. Maybe none of those resonate with you. That would be nice. Maybe other things do. But do God's blessings seem to fail you? And when they do, how do we respond? Or, no doubt, like Naomi... Maybe less extreme, maybe not. Many of us will have experienced the sharper disillusionment with God's promises. That horrible, abrupt crumbling of what we'd hoped for or taken rest in. And probably most of us have got shocks like that left to come as well. It could be the death of someone close to us. It could be the prolonged period of ill health for us or for a friend. It could be the ongoing financial trouble which comes to constantly dog your thinking. Or the failure of human relationships and family strife, consistently stressful work. Or as I found a few years ago, as simple as the closing of a door. An opportunity or a blessing that you stacked all your hope in 
being finally and unequivocally denied. When we run into some of those things, it it would almost make sense to conclude either that God doesn't exist or that he does, he is sovereign, he just doesn't particularly love me. What else can we do when God's blessings fail us completely? What brings Naomi back isn't the empty big picture simple answer. God is in control, it's going to be alright. And it's not, look, it's rubbish now, but heaven's going to be great, honest. Perhaps many years later she could look back and appreciate some of that, but I'm sure that stuck in the thick of it, in amongst her grief, and struggle, those ideas probably raised more questions than they dealt with. What brings Naomi back is just that she looks and sees in verse 6, the Lord comes to the aid of his people. Hers is a God who saves, though she's got no idea how that's going to work out. Let me encourage you to dwell on that idea. If times are good, then dwell on it now so that you remember it, so that you see it again later when things feel desperate. Or if right now you feel that God's blessings for you are incomplete, that he doesn't have your best interests at heart, remember what God is like. Dwell on his character. Ours is a God who saves That's literally what the name Jesus means. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Paul, he he writes to the scattered, persecuted, hurting church, and the very first thing he wants them to remember, that even before all their hardship, God has chosen them, sprinkled them with his blood. God saves. He has saved them, and he will continue to come to the aid of his people. At some level, Naomi gets that. She doesn't have the answer. She doesn't know the how or the when or the why is it so tough. But she sees enough of the character of God that she returns to him and she clings to him. Ours is a God who comes to the aid of his people. Dwell on that idea. What about Ruth? Now, what do we take from her in this passage? Uh, If you're a Christian, there are obviously very strong parallels. Ruth is a foreigner. She is a Moabite. By law and birth, she is obnoxious to God. And she really brings nothing to the table. In honesty, if we reflect on our hearts, our thought life, our actions... We've got to admit, we are equally unimpressive. (coughs) What great skills, what gifts do I need to develop so that God will need me in my own right? Not a chance. I've got nothing to offer. But it's the grace of God that he takes the weak and the valueless, Ruth, or you or me, And he grafts them into the vine of Jesus. And nourished by Jesus, they bear fruit. 
Ruth shows that wonderfully. She's accepted as a foreigner into an Israelite family and as a result, she shows such kindness, such godly character, such fruits of the Spirit that by the end of the book, everyone who sees it is praising God. So how can I aspire to live and be fruitful as a Christian? What is my calling? How can I hope to demonstrate Jesus? Where should I direct my energies? If I'm ambitious, which ministry should I end up leading to great success? Well, if like Ruth, you've been accepted into God's people, your calling is to cling to them, care for them, love them, provide for them. Direct your gifts into that. Let that be the context for ministries. Because that's what God is looking for in his people. That's the religion that he considers pure and faultless. Shoring up the weak, loving each other as we struggle. Isn't that the way that the church is going to grow? Isn't that the core of evangelism as well? How to do that? Well, obviously home groups are ideal settings for that. They give time and space to deepen relationships for us to see the support that's needed and even to feel close enough to people to accept kindness. But why not also see if you can invest time in, in regularly meeting up with someone to pray and to study the Bible, to encourage and love each other as you struggle. Or, or simple, take the time to hang about after church. Chat, get to know people so that over the weeks and months we can encourage each other and love each other and support each other. I'll be the first to admit, those are not imaginative suggestions. So, be wise then in how you use your gifts. But commit them to kindness to the people of the church. Ruth is later praised for her kindness. Don't you want Jesus one day to say the same to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've invested what I've given you in the place where it matters. Well, look at chapter 2, verse 12. Ruth gets praised there. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Wouldn't that be glorious to hear? Let's cling to God's people. It's a tall order though, isn't it? So, let me just try to finish on a high and remind you that despite appearances, Ruth doesn't do this in her own strength. Naomi doesn't get rest simply by going back to the land of Israel and sponging off family. Ruth is the story of how God breaks the cycle of sin in Judges and he does it by, in his grace, establishing the line of his king. It's first David, but ultimately Jesus. It's at the cross of Jesus and at his resurrection that Christ's sovereignty and goodness are demonstrated beyond challenge or doubt. If we've got any goodness comparable to roots, it's not because we're great. It's because like ingrafted vines, we draw our strength and spirit from Jesus. 
if we've got or are going to get a portion of the rest that Naomi hungers for. It's because as weary and heavy laden travellers, we've heard him say, come to me and I will give you rest. The world is chaotic, it is far beyond our control. But there is no firmer foundation and there is no surer guarantee than the promise of Jesus, our God who saves. So if life is rosy or if blessings seem far off, we need to cling to him in the knowledge that he comes to the aid of his people. Thank you. I'm going to pass over to Pat. I think we're going to reflect and sing and such. Thank you, Charlie. We're going to...